Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Okay, we're going to go through Zechariah 5 today, and actually it's kind of, I don't know, serendipitous is probably the wrong word, because uh, according to the, to the Jews, and we know in God's kingdom, kosher or uh, coincidence is not a kosher word, that's a saying they have. But we're going to study Zechariah 5 today, and it's, it has to do with Babylon's return home to Iraq and to the plain of Shinar. And ironically, it's linked to the Middle East. And here we are with Israel, as I mentioned, declaring war just about an hour and a half ago on Hamas and Hezbollah. And you have the Lebanese people, that nation. Uh, Israel may decide to get real serious and just go up there and start taking out some things. And it's just pay attention to the headlines and what's going on over there. A great place to get news about what's going on. Look at any Israeli newspaper. Look at the Jerusalem Post, uh, the Israel Times. You know, look over there at what's going on. Find some some websites, some news websites over there in the Middle East. You can get a lot better information than from, you know, CNN or MSNBC or whatever over here on the state side. So anyway, let's open up in prayer and pray again for for them. Lord, we just thank you so much again for this time together. Guys, we gather right here around your word. We pray that you would absolutely speak to us through Zechariah 5. God, thank you for the lessons in this word. Thank you, God, for this chapter. Thank you, God, for the prophetic vision that you gave Zechariah so many thousands of years ago that we are watching unfold in the headlines today. We thank you, God, for it. And we pray peace over Israel once again, God. We pray security over your sons and daughters in Lebanon, in the Gaza Strip, in the West Bank, in Jerusalem, all over Israel. We pray that you would protect your people and that those that don't know you would see you in a mighty way and see the strong hand of the Lord during this time, God. Rebuke the enemy and let peace take hold and return those children and those women and those families to their homes, to their families, to peace, within the boundary of Israel, and we thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, Zechariah 5, so this vision is very, very interesting. The Lord gives Zechariah two different visions in this chapter, and, you know, at first when you study it, it's, it can seem very confusing at first, which is one of the reasons why we always start out with 1 John 2, 27 and 28, that we've got to have the Holy Spirit teach us everything out of his word, especially in Zechariah 5, because we get a, a glimpse of something that's yet future, but it's actually starting to get set up in the headlines right now over the last couple of years. And so we, just, we always want to lean on the Holy Spirit, right, to teach us everything. Now, in chapter 5, uh, or in the outline of the book, I should say, we've been going through, remember these 10 visions all occurred in one night for Zechariah. 
and we've gone through the first eight of them, and we've got one more today, or I'm sorry, we've gone through the first seven. I actually, for some reason, there's a check mark on eight. Eight and nine we're covering today. So we've got three more, counting the two today. And then God changes his focus into an interlude regarding the feast days, the first arrival of Jesus, our chapters 9 through 11, and then the second arrival of Christ in chapters 12 through 14. So the book is, we're making good progress. And as I mentioned, we've got two visions from Zechariah in chapter 5. Now, the previous visions have been very comforting to the, to the people of Israel, very encouraging, very comforting to them. But the Lord turns to a very stern warning at this point. So he's going to focus and now focus back to the truth, the truth of his word, that his word is, while it is a double-edged sword, divided amongst the sunder, the soul and the spirit, it's also a double-edged sword in that, and this was part of actually what I spoke about yesterday, his warning to the world means salvation for his people. His warning to a, to a Christ-rejecting world that judgment is coming and that the tribulation will unfold means salvation for his church and his people because the Lord will, will bring us home before all that unfolds. Okay, so the two visions here, one vision is of a, a flying roll or scroll and the other is of an ephah containing something very wicked. The flying scroll is written on both sides and is going to address thieves and those that swear falsely by the Lord's name. The second vision is going to provide the missing piece as to how I believe Babylon is addressed in Revelation 17 and 18 as a literal city yet to be destroyed. And so you have this, there's a great enigma in the Bible. You have the doom of Babylon, the destruction of Babylon, and then mystery Babylon. And what are those three? What, when have they occurred? And what is future? And there's a woman named wickedness inside this ephah and it's going to relate to the harlot world religion and revelation, which is mystery Babylon, all capital letters in God's word. Okay, the previous visions have dealt with the enlargement of Israel, the subjugation of Israel's enemies, the internal cleansing and restoration of his people, Israel's ministry and witness, and now God's dealing with judgments. And so, as we all are aware, Almighty God cannot allow evil to last forever. He can't. Amen. He cannot let that happen. There's no justice if evil goes on forever. And God is a just God. Now, unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't happen in the time that we would expect, right? Sometimes you see the abominations going on and you even look at some of the, the video clips of innocent women and children being shot in their apartments in Israel and you think, Lord, where is the justice? And you have to remember Romans 12, 9, that vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, I will repay. And that's not our duty. Our duty is to pray for these people and yes, to stand firm on his word. But God will have his vengeance and his vengeance unfolds and it's eternal. And as, if, as gracious as he is and as mighty and powerful as he is, when he withholds his, his justice for just a little bit, a season to give people to repent, it is completely out of his mercy and his grace that he does that. But he wins, and Jesus will reign on the earth in holiness. Okay, in verse one here, we're gonna go kind of fast. Then I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a flying scroll. Okay, the Hebrew word for and behold, it actually implies a lot of excitement. 
So whatever Zechariah was seeing, it was lively and exciting to him. He was very excited about it. You know, he was, he was pumped to see this flying scroll coming in. And the roll, uh, the Megillah, it's actually in reference to a scroll. So if you've ever seen uh, one of the, the pro- prophecy conferences I went to back in 2017, they actually had this in the foyer. They had a roll, an, an original scroll of the book of Isaiah. It was huge. It was rolled up, of course. But, you know, it's kind of on almost like a rolling pin that you'd roll out dough, like cookie dough. has handles and this, this rod in the middle, and that's wrapped around it. And the way God's word was originally written, you know, Hebrew goes right to left, and it was continuous. So the book of Isaiah, for example, it's just continuous. The chapter and verse divisions are man-made. Okay, just keep that in mind, too, when you're reading the Bible, because sometimes they're a little bit of an odd spot. Uh, one example is when God's prophesying about Cyrus. He does that towards the end of, I think it's Isaiah 48, but it really co- carries over in Isaiah 49. So those are man-made divisions. So don't get too hung up on the chapter and verse divisions. They're great for references, right, where we can reference where to go in that scroll. So I hope that makes sense. But this roll, it's really a scroll that Zechariah sees. And the book of Isaiah actually is one of the largest scrolls we have it's 10 inches wide and 30 feet long. That's how big the book of Isaiah was written out in a scroll. So just think of Isaiah continuously going you know, from wall to wall in this building almost, or a little, little beyond that. Okay, it's very different than what we use today in terms of a codex, right? You and I, when we read a book, we call it a codex. It's bound pages with a spine. And what I love about this, though, is this scroll, the first place this word appears in the Bible is in reference to Jesus. And it's in Psalms 40, verse seven. And then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. That word volume is scroll. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. Notice that when, he, when Jesus says this, and we, this is one of the things that got me absolutely on fire to study the word of God, was when I realized that every single verse and every page in the Bible speaks of Jesus somehow. You just have to know how to find it. And in the volume of the book, it's written to me. That's Jesus speaking, first person singular. And notice that in God's perspective, it's not this book, it's the book. In God's eyes, there is one book. There is only the book. And that's the book that is all life-giving, that strengthens you in your walk, that builds up your faith, and it's the very contract by which you and I are saved. It's the book. Okay, the scroll is flying, and in the Hebrew, like I mentioned, it's very active, And so the scroll has the word of God on it, which is lively and active. And that's exactly what God says of his word in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the hearts. You know that God's word, he knows what you're thinking and your intent in your heart before it ever happens. His word knows that. Now, in the Greek, the quick means living, the powerful means energetic. Okay, so this word, his word is quick, it's living, it's active, it's energetic. His word is so active that no matter what you're going through in your life, you can be reading it and it applies to you. Anywhere in the word, anywhere. You can be reading Leviticus 11 and you're reading these weird old sacrifices that 
seemingly don't mean anything to us today as the church, but in that is something hidden so deep for your life and what you're going through right now. I promise it works every single time. His word is inexhaustible. Okay, and he said unto me, what seest thou? So the angel's asking, Zechariah, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll, the length thereof is 20 cubits and the breadth thereof 10 cubits. Okay, those dimensions, 10 by 20, they're the same dimensions you can find them in the tabernacle in Exodus 26, 15 through 25. You can find them on Solomon's porch at the temple in 1 Kings 6, 3. So they link to fellowship and relationship in the presence of God. They link to that, those measurements. Then said he unto me in verse three here, this is the curse. Now notice that Zechariah doesn't ask what it is. The angel tells him this time. Okay, th- and they said to me, this is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth. For everyone that stealeth shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and everyone that sweareth shall be cut off as on that side according to it. So it's from this verse, you know it's written on both sides. The scroll is written on both sides. Written on both sides actually applies to, the remember the tables of stone that Moses had from Mount Sinai? That's in Exodus 32, 15. The stones were, the tables of stones were written on the front and back side. The seven sealed scroll, remember in Revelation 4 and 5, when we're in the throne room of the universe, the Father's holding a scroll written within and on the back side that no man was found worthy to open until one who comes forward as the line of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, he takes that scroll because he has the authority and then he opens it up. Now, it's written on both sides because it is a sealed indictment, a title deed to the earth, that scroll that the Father's holding. And we studied that back in Revelation, but it's a, it's a sealed indictment. The seals are, in the ancient world, the seal on it showed what you had to do, what your authority was to open that scroll. And then in the scroll were the terms and conditions of that, of that title deed. So the front of it would have, okay, Matt is going to sell his, his property at this address, whatever, and the back would be the terms and conditions of that sell. Okay, so it, it's a, there are terms and conditions that nobody in heaven, remember they even look in three spots, they look in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth for a man that was found worthy. And I think that is fascinating. We studied that pretty deep back in Revelation, but they look in three spots and we're in the throne room of the universe and we are there and we get to see Jesus come forward and take it. Ezekiel's scroll in Ezekiel 2 is also written on the front and back side. Okay, and, it, and as I mentioned, writing on both sides indicates a deed or contract of some kind. The scroll contained a curse for everyone who steals and a curse for, for everyone who swears falsely by the name of the Lord. And that's in verse four, we'll see in a minute. And God, you know, God has a remedy for sin, but if you refuse that remedy, then the other side of his word is that there is retribution and consequences. He gives you the out, but he does not force it on you. And that is true whether you're saved or not saved. If you're not saved, the out is get into the, into the Lamb of God, get covered by the blood of Jesus, get saved so that you are removed from the very penalty of eternal separation from him. Then once you start that sanctification process, you need to yield your life to him. And if you don't, much like the children of Israel, they are disobedient to God at his word. 
they went into captivity for 70 years into Babylon as a result. And so there's always consequences for not following his word. Sin always has consequences, no matter what. Okay, the curse in verse 3 here, I find this fascinating, especially in light of what's going on in the Middle East right now. The curse in Hebrew is Allah, and it means God's judgment in Hebrew. That word means God's judgment. I didn't actually realize this was a word in Hebrew until I started studying this for this message. It's the reference for that is Numbers 5:23, Deuteronomy 29:18 through 20, 2 Chronicles 34:24, Isaiah 24:6, Jeremiah 23:10, Daniel 9:11, on and on and on. Allah means curse, the curse from God. Now look at Jeremiah 23:10, for the land is full of adulterers, for because of swearing the land mourneth. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up, and their, their curse, or course, is evil, and their force is not right. Daniel 9.11, just as an example also, yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey the voice, thy voice. Therefore, the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. Now, I think there's probably a play on words here that God is, is using the word in Hebrew that means curse, Allah, and what do all of these people that are running through Israel right now trying to kill innocent civilians chanting? Allah. They're chanting Allah constantly. And I, I think that is really, really interesting that in the Hebrew there's a link there. And indeed, when you study Islam, Allah, the God that they worship that is not a God, that is a false God, the God they worship, Allah, is he is capricious. He can do anything he wants. He does not stand by his word, and those people know it. And they serve him constantly, and they know that at any moment he can change what he has said in his book, okay, that, he, that this false God written. The God that we serve, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is not. He sticks to his word, and what he says will come to pass. And when he tells you something, he means it, and he will not back out of that word. So when he says he will never leave you nor forsake you, he means that. And Jesus is a man of his word, so do not ever forget that. The two sins that God chooses here, stealing and swearing, theft and perjury, are the two sins that he chooses. It's ironic, those are the two middle commandments on the two tables of stone, theft and perjury, the two middle each one had five, that's the middle one, the third one on both. Okay, the, to be cut off was to be purged from. Okay, everyone that stealeth shall be cut off. It means to purge, to get out, okay, to get rid of it. The very presence of sin could not stay within the congregation or near the Lord. One of the things that God tells them when he removes them from Egypt is, I had to take you out of there, I cannot dwell with you in the midst of sin. And think about that. God cannot physically, Jesus cannot physically rule and reign on the earth again in the midst of sin. That's one of the reasons why there's so much tribulation for those seven years. It's purging it out. It's getting rid of it. It's clearing the land, so to speak, so that the Messiah can come back and set up a righteous kingdom. Now we know from studying the millennium that sin does happen during that thousand year reign. It's in Jeremiah and all over the Bible, but it happens, but it's dealt with immediately. It does not linger. 
God cuts it off right away. Okay, look at Galatians 3.13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. So you're not under the curse because he was made a curse. He took on that curse. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Okay, Galatians 3.13. In verse four here, I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief and into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name, and it shall remain in the midst of his house and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. Okay, this, that verse, the consumption of the house, okay, this, is, this links to what they would do to a leper's home. Now, to swear falsely by God's name is from Exodus 20, verse 7, thou shall not take the name of thy Lord, the Lord thy God in vain. Remember, if you're a Christian, you cannot take on the name of the Lord and take it in vain. He will not hold you guiltless for that. You have to take on the name of the king, be a faithful ambassador for him, and live out your calling in your life for Jesus. And to find that calling, you have to be in his word. You have to be in his word to find that calling. And then you can walk and live out your life for Christ. And he will take and just burn everything away from you. So do not swear falsely by God's name. Okay, in Zechariah's case, the one who does this not only has a curse, but that curse stays in the house until it's all consumed. And now this is, leprosy in the Old Testament is constantly used in relation to sin. Because what happens? Sin gets inside and it starts to deteriorate. Okay, it gets inside your life, but then the exterior starts to deteriorate. Leprosy is used constantly as a sign of sin in the Old Testament. And as a result, what did they do? They would tear the house down. They, they wouldn't just try to fumigate it and, and let it stay. They would take the house by stone by stone, timber by timber, and just wipe it off. And that's what you have to do with sin. You have to surgically tear it down and just get it out. Get it out of your life. That's what we all have to do. Okay, in verse 5, now this is where the second vision comes in. So Zechariah sees this flying scroll. It's God's word. It's a message to those that steal and swear falsely. And now the second vision comes in. The angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goeth forth. And I said in verse 6, what is it? So Zechariah is asking now, what is it? And he said, this is an ephah that goeth forth. He said, moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. Okay, an ephah, if you're not familiar with an ephah, I don't know how many of you go to the store and try to measure out, you know, rice in an ephah or anything. Um, I'm guessing not many, maybe some, but an ephah, it's a measurement com containing 10 omers, in case you're curious. 10 omers, makes so much sense now, right? Exodus 16. It's also equal to a bath, okay, in case you didn't know that, from Ezekiel 45, 11. The bath is a tenth of a core, okay, so you see how these measurements work out. I feel like I'm reading a baking book, and I'm asking my wife constantly now, what is, what's, a, what's this, a teaspoon versus a tablespoon versus a, so you've got an omer, a bath, and a core, and for us today, if you're a farmer, it's equivalent to about 1.05 bushels, Okay, so if you go to the store and you buy a bushel of wheat, or if you trade on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and you're trading bushels, okay, this is your bushel. You've got, you've got 10 omers, an ephah, 
and a 1.05 bushels. It's a, the point that God's making here is the ephah at that time was the standard volumetric measurement for trade. That's how they traded. You and I today trade in freedom measurements, okay, not the, not the uh, communist European measurements. We trade in freedom measurements. We trade in gallons and liters and, you know, things like that, pounds, uh, dollars. So it's a standard volumetric measurement for trade. That's what God's saying here. Okay, behold, then, and behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. And this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. So you have a volumetric measurement of trade, and now you have the metric they used for weight of a talent. A talent's about 100 to 110 pounds. So remember in Revelation, at the very end, during the, the seven bowls of wrath or vials of wrath, God pours hailstones from heaven that weigh a talent. These are 100-pound hailstones that pummel the earth. Okay, you think it's bad. You, know, you see pictures when in Oklahoma, especially we get a lot of hailstorms. You see those, the hailstones that weigh about like a softball. You see, and they, and they shatter windows, and they damage cars and tear up roofs and things. Those probably don't even weigh a pound or maybe a pound. Okay, this is 110-pound hailstones. They will crash through concrete roofs. And, this, and think of the velocity of them coming from heaven. He's, he is throwing these from the other side of this dimensionality. Okay, so just think about the speed of that that he's doing. In Job, you actually get a, a picture of this when he says, who has seen the treasury of my snow reserved for the day of judgment? That's what he's talking about, is the treasury of these hailstones. Okay, so the talent. Now, interestingly enough, another side note, they, the earth dwellers in Revelation, they are blaspheming God. And from Leviticus, what is the punishment for blasphemy? It's stoning. And so they are stoned. And I think that's really interesting too. Lead represents heaviness from Exodus 15, 10. Thou didst blow with thy wind and the sea covered them. They sank as lead in mighty waters. Lead is very heavy. It's a very dense, dense material. The Hebrew even applies that the woman, the woman in the midst of the ephah is sitting very comfortably. She's very comfortable. She's living luxuriously. She's in the midst of the economy. That's the picture we're getting. There's the, the ephah for the volumetric measurement of trade. There's the lead lid, right? That's the, the weight of trade. And then inside of this economy is a woman sitting very comfortably. Okay, so that's the, that's the vision that Zechariah has. And he said, this is wickedness. The angel tells him, this, this woman in here is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. So the woman is wickedness, and in the Septuagint Greek, it actually is rendered as lawlessness. Okay, remember in the New Testament, days of lawlessness will come. Okay, speaking of the tribulation, in verse 9, Then lifted I up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women. So there's a woman in the ephah that's wickedness. Two women come out, and the wind was in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they filled, they lifted up the ephah between the earth and heaven. Okay, angels always are described as men in the Bible, constantly. They're always men. So here we have two women. 
Here, though, these two women are acting as agents of evil to transport wickedness. A stork to the Hebrews is an unclean bird. And that's from Leviticus 11.19 and Deuteronomy 14.18. So you have, with wings of a stork, so these unclean, foul creatures coming out to lift wickedness up in the midst of an economy between earth and heaven and to take it somewhere. Okay, that's, that's what's happening here. Then said I to the angel that talked with me, whither do these bear the ephah? And he said unto me, to build it an house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Now, Shinar was the birthplace of Babylon. Now, that closes Zechariah 5, that last verse there. The, the Shinar was the birthplace of Babylon. It's built by Nimrod, and his, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Shinar is like, here we live in Oklahoma County, right, but in the city of Edmond. That's kind of the, the picture here. Shinar is the plain or the county. Babylon was the city. Okay, when God began regathering Israel the second time on May 14th of 1948, and still going on today, he brought them from Shinar in Isaiah 11, verse 11. He gives a list of all these places he's bringing his people, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, you can find that when he brings them back the second time, they shall never be dispersed again. And so you know when Israel was set up in May 14th of 1948, they were never going to leave that land again. And so as hard as the people around them right now are trying to take it back over, they will not be successful according to God's word, okay? Now, when God began doing that, he pulled them from Shinar. What's interesting is there's a draw and a pull on the Jews right now to get back to the Holy Land, to the land, their land, their promised land, all over the world, there's been a draw since May 14th of 1948 for them to go home. And just now, when, when Israel declared war, the IDF sent out the Israeli Defense Forces, set out a message all over the world calling home every single citizen around the, the world, every male, to come back home to serve in the military. So that's how serious it is. They're calling everyone home. And when that happens... When Israel is, the pole is back into the land, God is setting up this final conflict. You are watching the stage setting. Now, again, he called them in the land 1948. It's been, gosh, uh, 75 years this year since that happened. So it can still take a long time, but you're seeing the setup. You're watching the setup right now. Okay, a woman named Wickedness is sitting within an economic system the system, including the woman, will be lifted up by unclean entities. Those entities will transport the system and the woman back to the plain of Shinar where they have a foundation prepared to set her upon. And upon that foundation to establish is the word in the Hebrew. It means to establish or to restore upon her own base. There's a home that this wicked, unclean system has left from years ago and migrated somewhere. It's migrated somewhere. And God's going to pick it back up or allow it to be picked back up, I should say, and have it return to the plain of Shinar where it's going to be built again. Okay, that's what you are seeing in Zechariah 5. 
Now, why would the Lord want us to have this vision today? And what is God showing us through this vision? Because everything in God's word is deliberate. He doesn't do anything by accident. This today is absolutely relevant. And I need my, my light pole with the light switch, I guess, to flip on just so Chris doesn't get all bent out of shape. But Acts 17.11 applies, okay? Acts 17.11 applies. You guys go search the scripture and, and see this for yourself. But the enigma that I spoke about early on there's three things with Babylon, the fall of Babylon, the destruction of Babylon, and mystery Babylon. There are six chapters in the Bible describing a destruction of Babylon that has never actually occurred. It's never happened, at least not yet. And if you take God at his word, literally, then you are watching this unfold in the headlines today. Those six chapters are Jeremiah 50 and 51, Isaiah 13 and 14, and Revelation 17 and 18, six chapters describing a judgment on Babylon that has never happened. Now, the fall of Babylon occurred on October 12th of 539 BC. Cyrus's general captured Babylon without a battle. The Persians diverted the river Euphrates into a canal upriver so that the water level dropped to the height of a man's middle thigh, okay? And that's a quote from some ancient writings. They diverted the river. The water, the water from being drowned in it got down so low. Oh, oh I looked like an OSU receiver for a second. <laughs> Just dropping the balls everywhere. Okay, so the, the river was diverted and it dropped down to the height about the middle of a man's thigh. And according to Josephus, it rendered the flood defenses totally worthless. Okay, and Babylon was very arrogant. They thought they were impenetrable because of this river, this moat they had around them. They thought they could never be taken. And so what did Cyrus do? He was brilliant, a brilliant general. And he diverted the river, the Euphrates, blocked it off. And under the cover of night, his military went in through the river, through these gates, and took over the city and killed Nebuchadnezzar's grandson from Daniel uh, Daniel, remember he has the handwriting on the wall incident that met Tekla Tekla uh, Eupharsin, Mekla Eupharsin, something like that. I'm, I'm forgetting words right now, but, and it, it means this day the kingdom will be taken from you and given to others and you will be killed, okay? Tekla Tekla, many Eupharsin, that's what it says. Okay, so the book of Isaiah actually prophesies Persia's conquest of Babylon and calls Cyrus by name more than a century before he was even born. And it's all in Isaiah 44. I, I said 48 and 49 earlier. I meant 44. But towards the very end of chapter 44, and it bleeds over to chapter 45. So it's one of those spots in the Bible that the, the division by man from a chapter and verse standpoint is not quite right. But it's all prophesied. And the conquering of Babylon was without a battle, so much so that Cyrus writes about it and puts it on, on this cylinder of Cyrus that's in the British Museum today. You can go to London and see this for yourself. And it states at the bottom, by Cyrus, this is what he wrote. Without any battle, he entered the town, sparing any calamity. I returned to sacred cities. Look what he calls Babylon, a sacred city. Every occultic practice and wickedness started in Babylon, every single one of them. There's not a single occultic false religion out there that does not have its roots in Babylon. 
to them and to the enemy, it is a sacred city. That's how they view it. They view it the way we would view Jerusalem. Okay, that's their view of it. On the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which have been ruins for a long time and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned them to their habitations. So he's speaking of what he did to the children of Israel. To the children of Israel, remember he gives them financial incentives to go rebuild the temple in Ezra. Okay, he was so impressed. So when Cyrus comes into the city, Daniel, you find this uh, written by Josephus, but Daniel gives him a scroll of Isaiah and shows him in scripture where he is called by name. And he's so impressed that he allows the children of Israel in the book of Ezra to go rebuild the temple. And it's because Cyrus had a call on his life. Now you, there's a principle here, you have a call on your life and if you find that call in God's word, you will be unstoppable. There is nothing that will stop you from living out that call. You have a call, it is somewhere in the Bible, I promise you, it is there. You've gotta search it out and find it. But he returned the temple vessels, they had been taken 70 years earlier. He provided the financial incentives from 2 Chronicles 36 and Ezra 1, 1 through 4. And Babylon then remained a city conquered by the Persians, but still intact. It was intact so much that when Alexander the Great relocates his capital to Babylon, after Greece conquers Persia, he relocates his capital there. He was so excited about it. So that's the fall of Babylon. The destruction of Babylon in those six chapters I mentioned is, is something that's never occurred. So let's look at those characteristics here of those six chapters. If you go and read those six chapters, this is what you will find God says about Babylon. The kingdoms of nations will be gathered to destroy the whole land. That's in Isaiah 13, four through five. It will be during the day of the Lord in verses six through eight. The stars of heaven and constellations will not give their light in verses nine through 10. The sun will be darkened and the moon shall not cause her light to shine, also in nine through 10. The earth shall remove out of her place in verses 13 through 14. I don't think that's happened yet. That hasn't happened. Not that any of us would be aware of, I guess. But the Medes will be stirred up against Babylon. That's in, cha- in verses 15 through 17. Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency. This is the beauty of the Persians. This is the beauty of the Chaldees. This is not the beauty of the Americans. You know, you can find a lot of people think that Babylon is New York City or Las Vegas or Los Angeles or some, or Paris or whatever. God's word says it's the beauty of the Chaldees. I don't think there's many Chaldeans calling Paris the beauty and the excellency of their history. It's Babylon. This is a literal city on the banks of the Euphrates River that will be rebuilt. And according to Isaiah 13, 18 through 19, it shall be when God overthrows it, it shall be as when he overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Now what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? It was destroyed instantaneously in one hour, never rebuilt again. And that's what God says will happen to Babylon. It will never be inhabited or dwelt in again, according to Isaiah 13, verse 20. Palestine, Palestine should not rejoice at their destruction. Palestine, the Palestinians are rejoicing a lot right now at what they're doing to Israel. And that's in Isaiah 14, 28 through 30. It's spoken against Babylon, the land of the Chaldees, again in Jeremiah 51 through two. Israel, as a result, will seek God 
in Jeremiah 53 through 4. The arrows used against Babylon when this war unfolds in Jeremiah 50 verse 9 will have intelligence. God predicts smart bombs and smart missiles in that verse. He says that arrows have an intelligence so that they will never miss. He's not talking about an archer, you know, with you and I with a bow and arrow. He's talking about smart weapons. That's our technology today. It's pretty amazing when you dig into that word in the Hebrew. It shall not be inhabited because of God's wrath. That city Babylon will never be inhabited again when this happens. And that's in Jeremiah 50, 13 through 14. And yet today it's inhabited. Babylon is inhabited today. And Israel will be completely forgiven in Jeremiah 50, 19 through 20. It'll be overthrown of Sodom and Gomorrah in verses 39 through 40. Many kings from the coasts of the earth will come in Jeremiah 50, 41 through 42. Israel has not been forsaken as a result in 51, 5 through 6. The cup, the Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the enemy in verses 7 through 8. It'll suddenly fall and be destroyed in Jeremiah 51, 7 through 8. God will render to Babylon and all of the inhabitants of Chaldea in 51, 23 through, through 24. It'll be desolate forever, forever, not just temporarily, not for a decade or anything. It'll be desolate forever. It'll be without habitation. And look at this final one here. It'll be a dwelling place for dragons, according to Jeremiah 51, 37 through 39, and a cage for foul and unclean spirits, just like in Revelation 17 and 18. God, we've got to take God at his word here, that he means what he says. And the whole earth is going to be surprised and, and be astonished in Jeremiah 51, 40 through 42. And no man will dwell in Babylon ever again in verses 43 and 44. And none of this happened when Cyrus conquered Babylon. When he went in and conquered it without a battle, none of this occurred. And so just like when we rightly divide the word of truth, between Jesus taking us home in the rapture and his return in power and glory, you've got to rightly divide the word of God in his judgment on Babylon, the doom of it versus the destruction of it. You've got to rightly divide that. And there's such richness to be pulled out when we look at God's word and actually see what he says. So the destruction of Babylon, the destruction of Babylon. This is a table, it's in your notes. If you take all six of those chapters and line them up, I've listed the characteristics of the destruction of Babylon on the left, and you can actually go in and write what verse in each of these chapters where that characteristic lines up perfectly with what God said. I've, I've helped you out with the bricks will never be reused in Jeremiah 51 verse 26, and I put that in there because of this. Jeremiah 51 26, God says that when Babylon's destroyed, the bricks will never be reused, Saddam Hussein spent billions and billions of dollars rebuilding Babylon. And when he did it, the locals, he used local labor and he used bricks from Nebuchadnezzar's original palace. And what I find fascinating about that, I saw a video years ago when I was studying this, I think it was National Geographic or someone was taking a tour through it and, the, and he's asking the cameraman, because he's looking at this wall of bricks and there's one brick right there in the middle that looks very old and different than all the rest. And he goes, well, what's this about? And the guy, the tour guide, who's a local who lives in Babylon that helped with the restoration goes, oh, that's one of the bricks from Nebuchadnezzar's original palaces that we dug up and used. 
And I just thought, man, how cool is that? That even if it was only one brick, God says that would never happen. And so you have an opportunity just to look at God's word and see the literal God, the literal word of God just come to pass. Now, when you look at this picture, Saddam Hussein rebuilt the palace. He tried to rebuild it. There's the southern palace, the Ishtar Gate. Ishtar is a, a pagan false god that they worshiped in Babylon. There's a temple, a northern palace, and you can see kind of the river there in the south. Here's an aerial view of that, of that layout. You have the, the hill, actually, that the palace of Saddam Hussein. You can see the road kind of circles that hill going up to it. It's actually a synthetic hill that they, they put back together around it. But his palace, he built back up there. He believed in his heart that he was the future Nimrod, that he would usher in that final Antichrist kingdom and fulfill what Nimrod started all the way back in Genesis 10. I think that's pretty neat. In fact, our military, uh, back in, the, in the, the second Gulf War, this was early, early 2000s sometimes, but they had a, a project where they built underground servers in Babylon, for some reason in Babylon, in Babylon where they connected fiber optic cable because their goal was to have an economic center to connect Western Europe to Eastern Asia. And they wanted it to run and route through Babylon. And you can sit there and you can kind of think about why would they, of all places, why would they pick Babylon? Here, I mean, this is it, you're looking at it. There's not much there, but there are locals and the palaces rebuilt and things. These are some modern headlines about Babylon. Is Babylon once again rising from the ashes? This was written in February 16th of last year, and here's a bunch of locals in front of a, one of the gate. The Iraqis celebrate, this was after the UN designated the ancient city of Babylon as a World Heritage Site. So you have the United Nations propping up Babylon as this great heritage site. Now, there have been rumors swirling around for years that the United Nations would leave New York City and relocate somewhere their headquarters. So could it be Babylon? Maybe. It could be. Uh, Babylon's coming back to life with its famed Ishtar Gate, the pagan goddess, to be restored by this summer. That was an article earlier in uh, March of last year. Here's some articles. The UN adds ruins of ancient Babylon to the list of the World Heritage Sites. That's an amphitheater in Babylon that was also restored by locals using some original materials. There it is. Iraq po poised for ambitious plan after Babylon listed by the UN. Now, isn't this fascinating? That's a picture of the palace right there. These are, these are modern headlines. These are within the last year, guys, of what is going on in Babylon. So in 2021, the Pope visited Iraq making a major milestone and you can, there's some links there in your notes you can look at. Pope Francis was the first pope to get to go into Iraq and visit Babylon. And here you have, in 2000, Pope John Paul II, he sought to make a pilgrimage, but he, was, he couldn't make it. Um, he, he got, did, he, for some reason, his trip got canceled. But when that happened, the negotiations with Saddam Hussein, the government broke down. John Paul actually wept because he was so sad he couldn't go visit this ancient site of Babylon. And, and when you look at what's going on with the Catholic Church today and with their whole push of Chrislam, 
they're trying, if you've looked at, uh, go look up the Abraham house. The Abraham house is something all over the Middle East where they're building uh, Christianity, uh, Judaism, and Islam all coming together to worship on one site. So they have mosques, they have a Christian church, and then they have a synagogue for Jews. And they're all on one site. It's called the Abrahamic house. And there's one in, I think, UAB, UAE in Dubai. I think there's one in Qatar coming up. Uh, but they're trying to get these kind of all over the Middle East to prepare for a one world religion. That's the push. The push is to get to a point where people are so watered down in their Christianity that they believe this one world religion that the Antichrist will eventually force on the earth. And it's very interesting. You're seeing that stage setting right now. Very, very interesting. This was actually, a, uh, there's a video there of, of going on a tour through restored Babylon. You can check that out. And you can see the original workings of Nebuchadnezzar's palace. They used local residents to restore the palaces so it's still inhabited. They used original stones, as I mentioned. It does not appear to be a place destroyed as Sodom and Gomorrah. That's, that's the point of all of this. And the, what we studied in Zechariah 5 is mystery Babylon, the wickedness, the harlot world religion being picked up. It will be picked up in the midst of the economy and taken back to the plain of Shinar to be rebuilt on its own base. And in Revelation 17, you get all about mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon is the mother of harlots, the final world religion. And it will return to the plain of Shinar in order to receive the final judgment declared by God. That's what's going to happen. And in Revelation 17, one through five, you can read about Mystery Babylon. In Revelation 17, six, the woman is drunk with the blood of the saints. So this, this harlot world religion is drunk on murdering Christians. That's the, in the future, in this antichrist kingdom, that's this religion. And every abomination today started with Babylon. And, the, and what you need to notice when you study Revelation is that the Lord differentiates between the woman, mystery Babylon, and the beast, the economic system that she rides for a season. So the Antichrist economy, he's going to use a one world false religion that's going to take advantage of his one world economy to push this in place. But eventually the beast that, that the woman is riding in Revelation turns and devours her. So the one world religion of this mystery Babylon does, does not last very long because then the Antichrist pushes in his worship on the world. And that's what you see in Matthew 24, Daniel 9, and elsewhere when he steps into the Holy of Holies and declares himself to be God. Now, when you, you can go back, if you want to dive into this deeper, go back to our Revelation series and you can and pull up Revelation 17 and 18 and go through that. We talk a lot about the seven heads representing Satan's seven super kingdoms, the 10 crowns being the 10 toes of Nebuchadnezzar's statue from Daniel 2, which are the final 10 kingdoms. But Mystery Babylon's an unfaithful woman, influence over the entire earth, seated upon the beast, directing the beast for a time, dressed in purple, scarlet, gold, and jewels. She's decked very luxuriously, drinking a cup filled with abominations, and it's a religious system linked with Babylon of Nimrod. She's the mother of all harlots, thus out of this system came all pagan religions. 
She's the persecutor of Jesus' followers and rejoices in their blood. And in Revelation, she sits on seven hills. And it's interesting that Rome was actually built on seven hills. Uh, very interesting. The city that ruled over the earth when John was given this vision was Rome, actually. Okay, to wrap up here. You know, you, you are, I talked about this a lot yesterday. You are a part of the army of God. And so when you see what's going on out there in the world today, and, you, and over the last 24 hours, it's even gotten more heated, you've got to take your responsibility very, very seriously. And when you study the Ephesians 6 armor, you've got to put on the helmet of salvation. Now, the helmet of salvation, we know from 2 Thessalonians 5 that the hope of our salvation is that we are not appointed to wrath. That's the hope of our salvation. And so what does that mean? That word actually salvation there has nothing to do with you being born again. It's salvation from the wrath to come. It's a different salvation. So our hope, the helmet of hope, is salvation from 2 Thessalonians 5, 2, 5 of the rapture. And it links to Titus 2, our blessed hope. So do you see the connection? The hope of our salvation, our blessed hope is the rapture. And that's what we put on in Ephesians 6, in Isaiah 59, 17, Jesus actually puts on the helmet of salvation and clothing of vengeance to, to take out and to declare war on his enemies. And so what, is an, what does a king do before he goes to war? What does he do? He brings his ambassadors home. He always does that. God is not going to leave us in this state while all war breaks out on earth and, and the king goes to war against his enemies. He's gonna call us home. And that's our hope, our blessed hope. And if you, from Titus 2, and if you are looking for the rapture, the great appearing of our God, you have a crown laid up for you, according to 2 Timothy 4.8. It's a crown that on the other side of this, he's going to give you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into the glory of your inheritance for all, all of eternity. You are in the army of God. And, in the, and what do people wear in the military? They wear armor. They have certain clothing they wear. They have orders to follow. They've got directions to take. And to do that, you've got to be in the word of God so that you can live out your calling. And if, you're, if you are watching this or if you are within the sound of my voice and you were in the world and you don't know, you don't know the Lord, bad. You need to do that right now because time is very short. And it's short for all of us. Um, even if the rapture doesn't happen in our lifetime, but you're looking toward it, you've got to get right with God because there are not many weekends left. Even if you live another 100 years, that's only 5,200 weekends. It's short. It's very short. And every one of them is precious and God says to teach us to count and number our days, to reckon our days, because you've got to be serious about your relationship with Jesus. It's the only thing you take with you on the other side of this. It's that. So, You know, when, uh, when you get born again, <clears throat> excuse me, when you get born again 
and you are regenerated in the spirit, you have a glory and a body that will last for eternity waiting for you. And when Jesus calls you home, just like that, in that instant, man, everything in your life that wasn't for him will be a loss, everything. So you've got to stay focused. And, and like I said, if you, if you are not born again and you are listening to this somewhere around the world, it's very simple. It's Romans 10, 9, that if you will confess your, with your mouth that Jesus is king, you will be born again and you are forever called a son or daughter of the Most High. And that is something that you can never lose. So do that. Do that before it's too late and get out of here. You know, they, if they want to call you an escapist or a futurist or whatever because you believe in God's word of the rapture, say thank you, I'll take it. Because I'm looking for Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. And Jesus, he is not a wife beater. He's, uh, he's going to take you home and rescue each one of us before he goes to war. So do that right now. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we thank you for the teaching of your word. God, we thank you so much for what you have given us. We thank you for your children, your people in Israel. They need you, God. They need you. And Lord, we don't know if this is the, the breaking out or the stage setting of Psalms 83 in that war, but God, in that war, the people that come up against Israel, they blaspheme your people and your hidden ones. And so God, I believe in that war, there's a group of people hidden that are hidden somewhere. And Lord, that very well may be us, the church. And so God, we just yield our lives to you. We thank you for your call. Be with us as we leave this place, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.